Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and you are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. It's the best podcast in creation, but you don't have to take my word for it. There's the films with Robert Downey Jr. There was that film last year with uh, Sir Ian McKellen. So, I mean, he's he Sherlock Holmes does not seem to be going anywhere. So, you know, as somebody who contributed to the to the Sherlock canon in a very big way, I mean, what, maybe brought him back to life. Yeah, what as long, what, as, long as we're being modest. There you go. <laughs> take credit for it. Own it. It's okay. <laughs> Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. So the following makes absolutely no sense because we recorded it last week. We were supposed to have two episodes last week, but Thanksgiving and me moving got in the way. And just listen. Thanks, guys. <laughs> this is our last week of two a weeks, I think. And It is. We, we originally started and uh, we said we were going to do it just through the month of September to try to catch up. And then um, <laughs> we did it for three months. Because we couldn't catch up with right. doing two a week. So we did two a week for three months and now we're at the end of November. And we're still but we still have it scheduled through the almost the end of December. <laughs> Beyond. We are, yeah, we're yeah. actually into January at this point. So if we start getting more people agreeing to be on the show in the next few weeks, I mean, we're we're slowing down kind of assuming that with the holidays, with the holidays yeah. yeah, people are going to be less inclined to try to set something up. But you never know. Um, we may have to go back to two a week. But yeah, for now, we're going to uh, go back to one a week. Um, but let us know what you guys like. I mean, I know there are some people who just listen at their own pace and it doesn't mm-hmm. really matter when they come out. If you do one a week, two a week, six a week, you know, they just kind of let them stack up in their queue and they listen to them when they have time. Um so did that make a difference for you? It made a difference for us only because I hate having interviews sitting right. in the queue. For like <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to. Uh, it'll be about three months before you're on. <laughs> yeah, that kind of sucks. Um, Hope you're not people. promoting anything. Yeah. Um, I hate telling people that or like going back like two months later and being like, oh, that that interview finally aired. Oh, you know, saw it. Thanks. <laughs> um, so it, it helps us get the episodes out quicker obviously mm-hmm. um one a week is easier for us in terms of get finding the time to get everything done um but let us know what you think did you, did you like one a week did you like two a week are you happy we're going back to one should we keep doing two <laughs> do you just not care let do you know. not care <laughs> is this the first episode you've ever listened to and you have no idea what we're talking yeah. about are, are you know. are you sitting there thinking what is this and how did i get subscribed to it <laughs> why Maybe. am i listening to it <laughs> But as a special tribute for our last two week for now, we have done a themed week for the first time. Space week. Space week. Ooh. Okay, we, you got to give me an echo. Space <laughs> week. I'll, I'll, I'll just do the echo myself. Space, 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 space. That's week, 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 week. Okay, that was, that was awful. That's the, you yeah. know, that's the, uh, we, uh, 
We have no we have we have no budget on this show, <laughs> no, people. No, you no. know we we have no budget. No, so. no. We I we I barely am able to pay for the internet connection that we do yeah. it through. So. so we do our own sound <laughs> effects. So that's you get my weak um my weak echo effect. There you go. Anyway, moving on. Right. So moving Space on. Week. Space Week. Who do we got, Jamie? Who's on Well, Space we week? started the week off all about Star Wars. We we, right. we talked to Pablo Hidalgo earlier this week, and now we're moving over to a little bit of Star Trek. Okay, so you're telling uh, me it's not just Space Week, it's Space Feud Week. Which one is better? It is Space Feud Week. Which one is better? <laughs> so we'll see which 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 of these episodes gets better list right. gets better numbers, <laughs> and we'll know who won the feud. Um, but we're talking to Nicholas Meyer today, um, and if you're a fan of Star Trek, you know who that is. And if you're a fan of the good Star Trek films, you definitely know who that is. Yeah, uh, he's the director of Star Trek's two and six. And he was one of the screenwriters on Star Trek four. So two, four and six are widely and almost universally regarded as the best um, of the treks. And uh, he was instrumental in all three of them. But his his career is not limited to Star Trek. Um, He has directed a lot of films uh, time after time, which is a, a phenomenal film. He he, uh, he directed the day after, which we talked quite a bit about. Yeah. Um, and if. I don't know. I mean, we, we talked a little bit about this in the episode, Justin, but do you remember that? I mean, were you too I young? Don't, I was too young for it. So for those of you who remember, The Day After was a, it's a, it's a television movie that was um, about nuclear warfare. And it, it came out sort of in, in, it was in the early 80s. So it was like the height of this, you know, 80s Cold War that we had going on with Russia and uh, or the Soviet Union. And uh, it basically it said what would happen if if we actually had a nuclear showdown and, and bombs went off and it was, it caused quite a controversy because it was rather graphic for the time. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, compared to things like the walking dead today, it's really rather tame. Uh, but for the time it was very graphic. And I really, I I say this in the interview, but I remember so clearly the principal of my elementary school coming over (laughs) the loudspeaker and telling us that we were really not supposed to be watching this show that was on TV that night. (laughs) And so, of course, we're all like, dude, we got to watch this yeah, show. Yeah, of course. You got to watch it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so Nick Meyer, he's also, I mean, he's a huge Sherlock Holmes guy. He mm-hmm. wrote The 7% Solution and a few other books. He, you know, if he's credited for bringing Star Trek back from the dead after the motion picture, he also pretty much brought Sherlock Holmes back from the dead. Um, so it's, uh, he's, he's, uh, he's just he's an incredible guy. Has mm-hmm. had an incredible career. Uh, and I think we had a pretty incredible conversation. Yeah, this is a this is a really good chat. Like, I'm I'm gonna go out there and I'm gonna put our show on the line here and say if you <gasps> don't like this, if you don't like this one, you don't like anything. What? <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> no, but seriously, this chat is fantastic, and you know he has some great story. He has a story about Leonard Nimoy, and he has a story. Oh, he's good. That's good. I'm not even gonna give it away. Just go listen. <laughs> I can't wait for you to hear it. It's the best podcast you're ever gonna hear a I mean, great this is podcast. not hyperbole this okay, is just just talking stop. right now <laughs> i'm gonna stop do you know who i'm being this is the best podcast you're ever gonna listen to great podcast okay i'm done i'm not gonna keep doing that <laughs> we can make fun right we can make I don't fun know. it's the, the wound is still too <laughs> okay i'll stop <laughs> all right we <laughs> go enjoy I'll, I'll shut up go enjoy <laughs> Nicholas, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. It's just a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure being had. 
Um, I want to, let's start someplace that most interviews might not start. That might be presumptuous, but uh, let's talk about the day after. Right. Um, when I, so this podcast is part of Geek Dad, uh, the website. And when I mentioned to some of the other Geek Dad contributors that we'd be talking to you today, uh, the conversation very quickly turned to our various memories of when the day after first aired and how our teachers and parents reacted. Some recall watching it in school. Some recall talking about it with their parents. For my part, I very clearly remember I was in elementary school. And I very clearly remember the principal coming over the loudspeaker and vaguely telling us that there was this show on TV tonight and uh, we really shouldn't be watching it because of graphic content. Which, of course, just made us all desperate to watch it. We all had to know what the show was about. That was you know, so forbidden. Um, how aware were you at the time of the reaction that this was getting in school? When I first was shown the screenplay and I was the fourth director offered the job, mm -hmm. um, I said to the execs at ABC, I said, this will never go on the air. You know that. And uh, they blithely assured me, oh, yes, it will. In fact, it barely got on got on by the hair of its chinny-chin-chin and preceded by so many disclaimers and warnings and everybody, you know, told to sort of bury their uh, head in the ground and uh, watch it holding hands and put on gas masks and I don't know what. Um, so I guess the truth is that I understood it was going to be a, a big uh, kerfuffle but I had no idea until the morning after, the day after the day after, if you will, that a hundred million people were going to see this movie in one night. I, I was flabbergasted. So that's interesting that you were the fourth uh, person contacted about directing it. Did, what was the reasoning behind that? I mean, was it just the content and people didn't think that it was going to make it? I think that the great paradox of nuclear war, nuclear war is the most urgent uh, concern that has ever, you know, with the possible exception of climate change, confronted the human race. And it's only happened within our lifetime. Since 1945, man holds the power to destroy himself. Mm -hmm. So you would think that this is the most urgent uh, issue, but in fact, it is so terrifying that most people simply cannot bear to face it or confront it. And I think that that arguably included other people who were offered the film to direct. Mm -hmm. I was at the time undergoing um, 10 years, what proved to be 10 years of psychoanalysis. And my psychoanalyst never spoke. In psychoanalysis, the patient does all the heavy lifting. But this was the, you know, one of the three or four times in the 10 years. Because as I was lying on this couch and trying to rationalize my way out of not directing this film, he very quietly said behind me, Well, I think this is where we find out who you really are. 
And the moment he said it, I knew I was going to have to direct the movie. Yeah. Um, and I was, I was frightened for any number of reasons. And um, I, no more than anybody else, wanted to plunge into the whole issue of nuclear war. I needed that like I needed an extra hole in my head. Um, on the other hand, uh, I do have to shave in the morning and look at myself in the mirror when I do it. And I, I crowbarred a lot of people into working on the movie mm-hmm. using the same sentence. Well, I think this is where we find out who you really are. Mm-hmm. And, uh, when I was talking to my cinematographer, Gain Rescher, who had shot Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, for me, and I said, you know, we're going to do this movie. And he said, oh, please, please don't ask me to do it. And after, you know, yanking out my trusty sentence, um, I said, do you mean to tell me that the one time Hollywood is going to give you the chance to put your work in the service of your beliefs, you're going to pass and do what instead? Sit around at dinner parties and bitch about the state of the world? Yeah. I think this is where we find out who you really are. And that worked. Oh, it worked every time. Yeah. So was it, do you think that it was, was it just the content and the, the issue and the, the timeliness of it? Um, what ultimately, you know, made you and convinced you to make that jump to television, which as far as I understand was not something that you ever anticipated doing in your career. Well, I, st- I wrote two films for television before I published my novel, the 7% solution. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had done some television. I wasn't thinking of it in terms of a career move mm-hmm. at all. It was just about, this seemed like the right thing to do, the thing I was supposed to do. This is who I really am. So I just did it. And I didn't think about whether it was a smart career move or not. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was controversial for any number of reasons. Um, but looking back, do you think that, do you think that you made an honest depiction of what an event would look like? I mean, with the constraints, no, with the constraints we, that you had. No, we didn't, we didn't make an honest depiction, um, for several reasons. Um, but the chief was that if we did, the movie would have been an hour shorter. Yeah. Cause everybody would be dead. Right. Um, this was the optimist's version of nuclear war because we also knew that if we made it too awful, people would just reach for the clicker, Mm -hmm. you know, and they would go on to, you know, the flying nun or something, you know, more reassuring. Uh, so it was definitely a balancing act. We did not want to make the film so horrible that it was unwatchable and people wouldn't sit still and watch it. Uh, and at the same time, we didn't want to make it so mild that we allowed for the notion that there was some hope. Yeah. Have a nuclear war. There is no hope. Yeah. Did you ever think that that film would still be relevant, you know, in 2016, 30 some years later? 
Or were you, when we, were, you when hopeful, we made... were you hopeful that, you know, we'd sort things out between then and now? I don't think, honestly, that I considered the future of the film. Yeah. Here's what I here's what I remember about the film. One is that I sat and watched it with the woman who subsequently did me the kindness to become my wife. And I sat there and wondered whether anybody other than the person who made this film in his right mind would trouble to sit through it. I, I just, it was so upsetting and so bleak that I thought, gee, I know why I'm watching it, you know, cause it's my movie, but I was, uh, as I said, totally astonished the next day to learn that a hundred million people had watched it and that this was and remains the most watched movie ever made for television. Yeah. What happened after that um, was that the press, ever helpful, uh, ran around with microphones and asked people if my film had changed their minds, yay or nay, about nuclear war. And then rather gleefully came back to me again with microphones extended to report that most people said their minds had not been changed one way or the other by the movie. And what did I have to say to that? And I said, well, number one, I don't think people change their minds overnight about anything. Right. Number two, I'm not sure that people know what they really believe anyway, what they think they believe, what they would like to believe, mm -hmm. what they would like other people to think they believe. Who the hell knows? It's very imprecise to try to find out what somebody believes. Yeah. Um, and, and I said, and who's going to admit that their mind was changed about nuclear war by anything as mundane as a TV movie? It just seemed pretty sort of far-fetched. And... But I was sort of, you know, rationalizing the results of this morning after poll. I did not realize and did not learn till later that indeed one person's mind had been changed by this movie. And that mind happened to belong to the president of the United States, yeah. who later went off to Reykjavik and signed the Intermediate Range Weapons Treaty with Gorbachev and almost, you know, signed away a lot more, came within a hair's breadth. Um, to the fury and consternation of his bellicose base who, you know, he came to power, Ronald Reagan, believing in the possibility of a winnable nuclear war. Mm -hmm. And uh, the movie changed his mind. I, I did read that and I hadn't, I hadn't heard that until I started reading about this and preparing for this conversation that, he watched it and it did in fact change his feelings on the cold war and on, you know, the potential for a nuclear war. Um, so when you say to me, did I envision the relevance of this movie <laughs> 30 some odd years hence? The answer is no, because I simply wasn't thinking yeah. in terms of 30 years. hence. at, at, at this point, I acknowledge with, uh, some humility and also some pride, I suppose, intermixed, that directing the film was probably to date, because well, I'm still here, the most worthwhile <laughs> thing that I have got got to do with my life. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna 
ask about that because in, it was still relatively early in your career. And, you know, it's sort of like at the time, it's it's hard to take everything in. But it's once you realize that, you know, something that you did affected the president of the United States and possibly, you know, had worldwide historical repercussions on the the on an issue that had no greater importance for the time but where do you go from there well for me you know it was it, it certainly is an impossible act to follow it's not a tough act to follow it's an impossible act to follow so i haven't tried to follow it in terms of you know building the panama canal or something um but in 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 fact the nuclear question has not gone away right. it's it's only gotten worse i think the, the big um illusion that we were all under when the soviet union collapsed and certainly when those of us who were making movies about the collapse of the soviet union and i'm specifically referring now to star trek 6 mm-hmm. um we thought we were entering a brave new world in which the conservative Harvard philosopher Francis Fukuyama referred to as the end of history. Have we reached the end of history? And it turns out that so far from having reached the end of history, history is in worse shape now um, than when, as unlikely, as insane as it seems, the United States and the Soviet Union were eyeball to eyeball with, you know, 54,000 nuclear warheads between us and enough to kill every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth 24 times over, or some intimidating, bizarre set of statistic mm-hmm. statistics. Um, but now... It's worse because now we're worried about lone actors and people with atomic bombs in suitcases and governments who have no uh, ability to supervise, contain, or control uh, these, you, you can't even call them weapons, doomsday devices. It, it seems that, you know, in this age, when you look at Hollywood and what they're making and everything's reboot this and remake that, it seems like this would be a prime property, if you can call it a property, it'd be a prime movie to remake in some fashion with a current day angle. Have you given that any thought? Do you know if somebody out there is looking at it with that in mind? I know people have given it thought and for all I know it's in the works, but I have not. Yeah. Yeah. Good for you. (laughs) Let it stand. Let it stand. (laughs) Um, let's, let's, Let's move to Sherlock. And try to brighten the mood a little bit. <laughs> You're obviously a big Sherlock Holmes fan. Yes, um, I am. Yeah. What was your first exposure to the stories? Do you remember? Yeah, I do. Um, I don't know. I was a maybe I was ten years old, and uh, I, I assume it was my father who gave me the books. Or I think it was one big book that held them all. And I remember that the first one was a study in Scarlet. And I was reading it and reading it and reading it. And I turned the page and I came to a whole other story that was set in Utah in, with the Mormons in the American West. And, I, I, and there was no Sherlock. And I thought that the printer had 
erroneously glued mm-hmm. two unrelated uh, stories together. But I kept reading about the Mormons in the West and stuff, and then suddenly Sherlock Holmes was back in it, and it all hung together. But I had no, I was totally bewildered as a kid mm-hmm. to, to, to turn the page and just find myself in a total other story. Um, that was the that was my first one, and then I I was addicted, and I plowed through the fifty nine other yeah. stories and novellas. Do you have a favorite of the original Doyle stories? I have several favorites: um, Silver Blaze, the Red Headed League, uh, the Bruce Partington Plans, uh, the Adventure of the Devil's Foot. Um, those are some, and um, the sign of the four, and of course, the hounds of the Baskervilles. Yeah. yeah. Um, aside from your own, putting those aside, uh, are there any other uh, Holmes authors that came after uh, Doyle that you particularly enjoy? There are some, mm-hmm. not many, um, and without putting myself in a separate category, Doyle is sort of unique and there are very few imitators of his that I enjoy. I despise most Sherlock Holmes movies, for example. Yeah. Can't stand them. Why is Uh, that? Because they're not, they're not Doyle and they don't sound Mm -hmm. like Doyle and not written like Doyle. And Dr. Watson was not a buffoon, just <laughs> the way Nigel Bruce always played them. And the stories are not set in the Second World War, which is where some of them are set. And I, I'm a purist. I just like the real thing. I remember at some point I was offered to direct a movie which was called Young Sherlock Holmes. And I went to meet the producer and I said, what is the movie? And the producer said, well, the movie is about how young Sherlock and Watson meet when they're at school together. And I said, that's not how they met. I can't do the movie. <laughs> they didn't meet like that. So, I, I, so, you know, the what are the Sherlock Holmes movies I like? I rather like the Peter Cushing Hound of the Baskervilles, mm-hmm. uh, which was on uh, TCM the other night. I enjoyed, enjoyed it. Um, I love the comedy called Without a Clue, mm-hmm. where Holmes is the dummy and Watson <laughs> is the smart one with Ben Kingsley and Michael Caine. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. Um, and I love the Billy Wilder, The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. I think that's a wonderful movie. Very atypical yeah. Billy Wilder. Totally uncynical, rather romantic and melancholic and special. Um and I like the Benedict Cumberbatch. You do? Yeah, very much, very okay. much. But that's very recent. You know, yeah. looking at the rest of the things, Sherlock Holmes in New York and the this, that, and I just go, no, no, no. Yeah. It's just, they're, they're not right to me. Yeah. I mean, the character, though, I mean, it's still, it's still so popular, you know? I mean, it, it's, it's one of those, he's one of those characters that just doesn't go away. I mean, if you look right now, like there's, there's the Benedict Cumberbatch show. There's, um, what is that other show? Elementary. 
you know, which takes the characters and puts them in a new situation. There are the there's the films with Robert Downey Jr. There was that film last year with uh, Sir Ian McKellen. So I mean, he's he Sherlock Holmes does not seem to be going anywhere. So, you know, as somebody who contributed to the to the Sherlock canon in a very big way. I mean, what, maybe brought him back to life. Yeah. What as long what, as long as we're being modest. There you go. <laughs> take, take credit for it. Own it. It's okay. <laughs> what makes the character so enduring though? I mean, aside from your fandom and that you just like the character, what makes him so enduring to everybody? <sighs> what makes Hamlet mm. the so enduring. Maybe that they're both their names start with H. <laughs> um, I thought at a certain point that the Holmes stories took place in a world that was long enough far away to be a sort of fairy tale world, but close enough to the modern age that we could sort of recognize a lot of the sort of props and 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 places and things that yeah. it was um it was a sort of a layman's bible in a way where holmes goes around interpreting everything for us and sort of telling us what things really mean we we like to know what things really mean life is a very bewildering mm-hmm. proposition things are arbitrary acts are random but detective stories generally and holmes in particular uh, insist that uh, it all adds up. Yeah, it all adds up. The clues were always there. Life does make sense after all. That may speak to the appeal of the stories. I don't know that it addresses your question as to what is it about Holmes's character, this weird clutch of eccentricities, talents, and and um, foibles, defects, mm-hmm. if you like, um, that. Uh, make him feel so human. He's not a superhero. Right. He doesn't always win. There are cases he loses. He's a drug addict, which people like to try to gloss over yeah. or deny. Um, but it's, it seems pretty hard to uh, conclude that he's not a user. Um. And a lot of people felt, and they criticized the 7% solution because it depicted him as an addict. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had, I said the following things, uh, and I still say them, that number one, I'm not the one who depicted him as an addict. Doyle depicted yeah. him as an addict. You didn't create that. Uh, no, I just went with it. Yeah. Number two, I think the people who get very upset and defensive about all this are confused about the difference between a hero and a god uh, and a god who arguably has no flaws and a hero who inevitably must. And I posit that, you know, if a man jumps into a raging torrent to save a drowning child, he performs an heroic act. Mm -hmm. I think we would grant him that. Sure. But I would also uh, wonder that if the same man uh, rescues the same drowning child from the same torrent and does it with a ball and chain attached to his leg, is he more heroic or less? And I would submit that he's more heroic Mm -hmm. and that Holmes's addiction, far from revealing him to be 
or or merely you know a, a flawed human being, which everybody is anyway, um, doesn't serve, in fact, to throw his heroism into sharper relief because he must function uh, despite it. Um, you are, unless I'm mistaken, you are part of the Baker Street Irregulars, yes? After 25 some odd years of waiting, they let <laughs> me in, yeah. So, for anybody listening who doesn't know, can you briefly or just explain what this is? Because I think w when you hear about the Sherlock Holmes, quote-unquote, superfans, or the people who are, like, really involved with Holmes, that, that name always comes up, the Baker Street Irregulars, but... There's a lot of mystery. It's sort of like a secret society. You have to be invited is pretty much all I know. <laughs> well, there, there are Sherlock Holmes societies in every city uh, around the world. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there are any in Kabul, but there are <laughs> Sherlock Holmes societies in Tokyo. There are Sherlock Holmes societies in Moscow. There's a lot of Sherlock Holmes societies. The oldest of these societies, to my knowledge... Are the Baker Street is the Baker Street Irregulars, which was started, I think, in 1934 by a man named Edgar Smith, who was then a president or vice president of General Motors. And the society has been in existence since then. It has had successive leaders. And there's a lot of uh, great and the near great <laughs> the powerful and the powerless who uh, from time to time gather, um, publish papers. There's a journal, the Baker Street Journal, which you can find, you know, and subscribe to. I don't think you have to be a member to get the journal. Um, and it's a lot of guys who find this very relaxing. Yeah. And... Uh, I think FDR was a Baker Street irregular. I know that his, yeah, I think his secret headquarters during the war was known as Baker Street. Really? Yeah, I think so. Um, so, yes, it is a very prestigious society, which I longed to join. And then because they began, or at least a number of them began by being so pissed off at my you know, writing about Holmes and cocaine. Uh, they kept you out? They kept me out for a while. Oh, no. Under, I was admitted under new management uh, <laughs> a few years ago. And now I'm entitled. There are certain, you know, initials that I can put after my name. You know, BA. Yes, I have a BA. Um, BSI. I can now write. Baker nice. Street Irregular. I love to write that. People I'm sure. Are, Is that? I go, how do you put <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so let's also put ADD. You know, there are other <laughs> lots of labels, right? <laughs> so let's move to Star Trek. I want to. Um, I have a story, um, so permit me a quick story. It may or may not be apocryphal. Um, the story is not. I, I actually was there. I heard it. The, the person who told it that that story might be apocryphal. So years ago. Um, I was at a Star Trek convention. Leonard Nimoy was there. And he was speaking about uh, lots of things, but, you know, they do. And he was talking, uh, what I remember is he was talking about Wrath of Khan. And he was talking about the ending. Somebody must have asked him about, you know, when Spock died. And he said, at the time that 
he was making the film, this was the end of Spock. And it was what everybody understood it to be. Um, the ending sequence, you know, it was this beautiful moment between the characters of Kirk and Spock. It was a perfect send-off to Nimoy's character. And he was very, very proud of it. Um, and then he said he went to the premiere and, and sat in the theater and sat in the audience with everybody else. And he was shocked at the ending, at the very ending scene when the camera pans down to the Genesis planet and you see the intact coffin. He did not know that that was in the film. And he said it was only at that moment that he found out that Spock might not actually be dead. It made a nice story for him. It was a good punchline, got a lot of laughs in the audience. But how much truth is there to that? Well, number one, I can't say. I'm not, I'm not Leonard. Mm-hmm. Um, this I do not know. But I do know a few related things. One is that everybody's memory is um, fallible. Sure. Uh, as an example, I was asked many times, what were my relations with Gene Roddenberry while making that film? And I would typically answer, well, I think I met him. Yeah. Um, but he, he wasn't part of the film. And uh, my recollection is that I didn't really have any relations with him. That turns out to be completely false. Um, I went to the back to my alma mater, the University of Iowa, where my papers are collected. Mm-hmm. And there I found a lengthy uh, and rather testy correspondence, a whole series of memoranda between myself and Gene Roddenberry about the script, which he didn't like. He didn't care for it. And you didn't and remember any of that. I completely blocked it and remember. <laughs> and as far as Leonard is concerned, I, I read in his memoir, and you must know by now that anybody connected with Star Trek, including me, That's writes memoir. a memoir. Right. So I, you know, instantly looked up myself in the index and was <laughs> astounded to read Leonard's account that on the day we shot the death of Spock, I showed up on the set dressed as Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> now, I'm in no confusion about this. I've never dressed as Sherlock Holmes in my life. Maybe he was confused about who, what Sherlock Holmes looked like. <laughs> well, I know what he was confused about. I understand what happened. Yeah. Um, the day that we filmed the scene, I was on the set wearing a suit. Oh. And I was wearing a suit because I was going to the opera that night. And in those days, when you went to the opera, you put on right. a suit. You now good. I go in jeans. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, there I was. I was I was wearing a suit, and and he had, in his, uh, I think perhaps understandably agitated uh, state on the day, mm-hmm. uh, misrecollected, even as I misrecollected my correspondence uh, with Gene Roddenberry. So, number one, memories are are fallible. Mm -hmm. Number two, my recollection is that when when we previewed the movie without anything on the planet, um, the audience was simply devastated. Yeah. And Harv Bennett, my my producing partner, said, you know, later, he said, we we got to do something. We've got to give him hope. It's got to be something. And I said, no, no, no. <laughs> he's dead. That was the 
that you know that's unforgivable that's a dry hustle you get these people care about this character yeah. and now you're going to tell them that you've twisted their emotions into like like a pretzel and you're going to say oh no just kidding yeah that seems very unfair but what i realized and i think leonard realized it way before he went to that preview a lot of people were having second thoughts now that they'd seen the movie and the movie uh, affected them so powerfully, it was Leonard saying, gee, was I really right to want this to be my swan song? In fact, Leonard had a very ambivalent relation to the Star Trek television show, the franchise, as we now call it, um, as did many of the other actors. Yeah. It was a sort of love-hate relationship. And th this is not the first time, by the way, that an actor has been so identified with a given role that the public has difficulty accepting them in any other. Right. Eugene O'Neill's father played one role. He played Edmond Dantes, the Count of Monte Cristo. And he could not get out of that. That's the way the public saw him. Leonard wrote two books. One book is called I Am Not Spock. <laughs> and 20 years later, he writes another book, I Am Spock. That's right. So he was very ambivalent about it. I can't say whether he did or whether he was or was not told about this ending. Yeah. I, I don't know. It would not surprise me if he were had not been told because studios are notoriously tactless and insensitive, especially if it's only an actor you're talking about, who cares? Um, you know, yeah. if, if, and Leonard was not, you know, by those standards, superstar, it wasn't like Tom Cruise where you, where you say, well, you want a Scientology tent on the set? We'll, <laughs> we'll give that to you. Um, he didn't, he didn't rate that kind of, you know, uh, consideration. Yeah. And it, it's entirely possible that he was not told. On the other hand, as I say, everybody, by the time the film was in its final stages, was thinking about, wow, you know, maybe there will be another Star Trek movie. And do we, do, does one want to make a Star Trek movie without Spock? Can you imagine such a yeah, thing? Yeah, sure. So forth. Sure. Um, it, it's... It's no secret that when you came on board to Star Trek II, um, you were not a fan. You had almost no familiar. I mean, you you were aware of what it was, but you were not, you know, entrenched in 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 the stories and the characters. And um, so the irony here is that of the thirteen now Star Trek features, Wrath of Khan is widely recognized as the best one. Um, do you think, though, that your disconnect from the story and those characters and, you know, that, that you weren't this this big fan or who you hadn't been watching it since 64 or whenever it came on the air, did that have something to do with it? That you didn't come on with any baggage? You just, what's the best story we can tell? And how do we, how do we bring that story to the screen in the best possible way? Well, it is true that I was not a fan. Uh, I don't think I'd ever sat through an episode. Yeah. Um, I would see these guys in their pajamas and the man with the pointy ears, and I just kept going. I, yeah. I didn't get what was what was cool about it because I didn't stick around long enough to get what was cool about it. 
And it wasn't until I found my found myself being shown certain episodes um, and shown the movie and so forth that I began to uh, sort of let my mind play, run free a little bit. And what it reminded me of, I realized for, for a while, I couldn't sort of put my finger on why I liked it and what it was I liked about it. And then I got to the point where I said, oh, wait a minute. I read these books around about the time I was reading the Sherlock Holmes stories mm-hmm. by a guy named C.S. Forrester. Mm-hmm. Which were, uh, he wrote The African Queen. Mm-hmm. But he also wrote a series of novels about an English sea captain during the Napoleonic Wars, Captain sure. Horatio Hornblower. Absolutely. And I thought, oh, well, Kirk is really rather like Hornblower in outer space. And since I always wanted to make like a movie about submarines and destroyers and that kind of stuff, that I love the enemy below. Mm-hmm. I love run silent, run deep, you know, and, and dust boat and all that mm-hmm. stuff. I thought, oh, I get to do that if I do this movie. And that was the way I went at it. Um, it was only later that I began to understand what the virtues of Star Trek really were, that the, the nomenclature and the costumes were not really the point. The, they were just the excuse to tell stories about earthbound dilemmas that we could look at without uh, bringing a sort of reflexive bias if you'd name things by their original names. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you, know, you, you developed a bit of a reputation as being the guy who could come in and do the impossible, I think. You know, you, you came... You know, in the in, bef- between the motion picture and Wrath of Khan, it, you know, the Star Trek was nearly dead, and you, you came back and you brought it back, um, just like you did with Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> you rewrote the script in something like twelve days, um, and then you came back for Voyage Home, and again, it was the eleventh hour, I think, when you came back in and you wrote that script incredibly fast. Is that a difficult reputation to have? I mean, does that come with expectations that you, you know, you're afraid that you can't deliver? Well, I always begin by thinking that they've hired the wrong person and that I'll fuck it up. I just, uh, I just always assume that I'll screw it up. And then by the time I finish my first draft, I've convinced myself it's a deathless masterpiece. So I do go to extremes. Um, I, 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 I really start with great fear and and trembling. Uh, and certainly with Star Trek, I had reason to believe. I mean, this has nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, I was really stoked about my submarine movie. Sure. Uh, and, and so I was, I, was, I was all on fire to do that. And the other thing was that mainly people let me do what I wanted. I was not being second-guessed. There was not a lot of studio interference. Harve Bennett would occasionally pull me back from my wilder excesses. Um, <laughs> but mainly, he sort of encouraged them. Uh, he he wasn't a Star Trek person either, by the way. He uh-huh. had done... Yeah, he had done Mod Squad and what was the $6 million woman or man or something. Yeah, yeah. And, um, so... He, so we we both came at it sort of 
cold and able to sort of pick and choose what we liked and what we didn't like. Um, you know, movies are like souffles. They either rise or they don't. Yeah. Um, and when you, if the writing is going well, it tends to go quickly. Mm-hmm. If it, if, you know, there are exceptions. I think uh, Twain took an exceptionally long time writing Huckleberry Finn. And for a guy who usually wrote fast, mm-hmm. that might have been perceived as a bad sign, except, of course, Huckleberry Finn is his masterpiece. I know you can't talk specifics, but is it nice to be back in the Star Trek universe with Discovery? I can't talk. <laughs> you can't even say if it's nice? <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, Better people than you have tried. You're gonna you're gonna say it again, but I think this might be just nipping at the fringes enough that you could possibly say something. Um, it's a it's a very different experience, I'm sure. You know, as we just said, you know, when you came on to work on Wrath of Khan: A Voyage Home, it was a very rushed experience. Everything was very eleventh um, hour. We need we need Nick to come in and and, and make this right. But now with Discovery, the project you can't talk about, there's there seems to be, at least from the outside, there seems to be this luxury of time. And, you know, the show was delayed. And if, you know, there's they want to get it just right or, you know, whatever the reason is. Um, But does that open up doors creatively for you? I mean, do you do you feel a sense of freedom that you didn't have with the films? The only thing I'll say. The only thing I can say Mm -hmm is that the television series is not my show. Mm -hmm. I'm a cog in the wheel. So it's the opposite of freedom. When I was, when everybody's in a big hurry, I can say, get out of my way and shut up and it'll get done. Yeah. That, that cannot happen in a show that is a collaborative effort. And the show is not my idea. Um, I am, you know, part of a team. Yeah. And I have to work within a whole bunch of uh, restrictions. It's it's sort of the opposite of what you're suggesting. Hmm. Interesting. Any other questions I have at this point would just be prying and you couldn't say. So that's interesting. I can't even say that I can't say. Exactly. <laughs> so after, what is the pushback? It's, it's May now? Is that what the release is? May 11th, I think. May 11th. We'll have to have you on next summer and we can talk a little bit more about it then. I'll send you. <laughs> How... Um, how much did you know about the script, if anything, of uh, Into Darkness while it was in development? I mean, were you even aware that they were essentially remaking Wrath of Khan, or did you not know until everybody else found out? Can't remember whether I yeah. knew or or not. Certainly, I've known JJ since I used to read him bedtime stories. Really? Yeah. Nice. And. Uh, <laughs> Uh, he reminded me some years ago, I, I bumped into him, he's a lovely guy, and he said, he said, you know, you, you attended my bar mitzvah. Mm. And uh, that's probably the only bar mitzvah I ever attended. <laughs> I, said, oh, I was there. He said, do you remember what you gave me? I said, no. He said, you gave me the annotated Sherlock Holmes. Oh. And my son is now reading what you gave me. Oh, that's lovely. So, you know, it's, all these things are sort of a, attached umbilically one yeah. to another. Uh, and, of course, I about a year and a half ago, I did the 
two-night Houdini with J.J.'s dad, who's been my partner off and on since after the Civil War. <laughs> At some point thereafter, right? A <laughs> um, couple more questions. I know we're running up against time, but two of your most popular scripts, uh, Time After Time and The Voyage Home, they're both time travel stories, and in many ways they're very similar. Um, they both deal with these very capable people who are just suddenly thrust out of their element and they're in the wrong time. Um, I, I think, you know, from a storytelling... In, in, in the same city. That's in the same city, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Um, I think from a storytelling perspective, that makes perfect sense. You know, there's so many possibilities there. Um, is, is that a theme that you enjoy exploring, though? I mean, that, that the idea of time travel? I can't say that it is. Uh, I'd like to make something clear. I wrote a lot of Star Trek IV, mm -hmm. but I did not write the whole screenplay. Sure. I, uh, I wrote the parts on Earth. I wrote the parts in San Francisco, which are indeed a sort of retread of time after time. And in fact, things that I cut out of time after time, uh, because as a director I had screwed them up, I was able to insert and retrowel into the voyage home. Mm -hmm. But Harve Bennett wrote the front and the back, the outer space part. My first line in, in Star Trek IV, somebody says, when are we? Oh, and yeah. Spock says, judging by the pollution content in the atmosphere, <laughs> I'd say we're in the late 20th century. Um, <laughs> and then Kirk says, everybody remember where we parked? I love that and, line. <laughs> uh, and uh, so, um, yeah, that was... You know, that was my stuff. Um, I responded to time travel when my friend Carl Alexander showed me 65 pages and an outline for this novel that he was writing about H.G. Wells and Jack the Ripper running around San Francisco. And I thought, gee, what a great movie this would make. It's a very visual idea. And I had... I. You know, it's funny about the things that influence. So people say, what are your influences? Mm -hmm. And that's a, a trick question. It's In a way, it's a naive question. Because lots of times people don't know what their influences are. We don't know the things that have most profoundly affected us. It's like going back to the beginning of our conversation when you say, what do you believe? Yeah. Do you, you know, and, and what do we really believe? And we, we don't know, we can't tell, we don't like to say, we say something else, we say what we think we believe. But, um, it might be very chic for me to say, oh yes, my big influence was Alfred Hitchcock and maybe Hitchcock is among my influences, but you may also be influenced by things that you're completely unaware sure. that they influence you. A friend, the way somebody laughs that you picked up that you thought was cool and fourth grade or something. Mm -hmm. um, I speak from experience. Of course. Uh, and I had seen a movie in college by Jean-Luc Godard mm -hmm. called Alphaville. Okay. With an actor named Eddie Constantine. And Alphaville was a science fiction movie in which everything was photographed as is. No, no special props, no special costumes, no special effects, but they all had different names. Mm -hmm. So it was all in your head. Somebody would say, hand me that communicator. Yeah. And hand him a book yeah. or something like that. It was all about the changing the nomenclature. Mm 
of things. And what I realized when I started to think about the cinematic potential of Carl Alexander's story was that as a movie, it reminded me of, of Alphaville, mm -hmm. that all I needed was two guys in Victorian outfits running around San Francisco. I didn't have to change San Francisco. Yeah. I just had to give different names for, for everything. Yeah. You yeah. know, it would all be sci-fi hardware as seen by our audience through their point of view. Sure. What's that thing flying overhead? Whatever. Magic. <laughs> uh, magic. Exactly. Um, so uh, to that extent, uh, I don't know if it was time travel that interested me, but sort of shifting the audience's perspective mm -hmm. of, of how we viewed our ourselves, which mm -hmm. was really what the story was allowing me to do. You know, I, I don't know that I've ever been that interested per se in time travel. I think also it's important to understand that artists are not only not the best, but certainly not the definitive judges of what they've done. Mm -hmm. And the word definitive, by the way, in my opinion, does not belong in any discussion of art any more than it this belongs in a discussion of biography where you say, this is the definitive biography. Right. No, a biography is a collaboration, is a portrait between a painter and a sitter. If you show, put down an apple on a desk and you ask three painters to paint the apple and one of them is Picasso and the other one is Rembrandt and the other one is Jackson Pollock, you're going to get three different apples, but you're not going to get a definitive right. apple. Artists are people who put messages in bottles and when it's done, they lose all proprietary authority over what they've created. They throw the bottle out into the wide world and they hope that it will be found, that somebody will pop the cork and be able to uh, decipher what they've put inside. Yeah. But they're not going to be standing there, chances are, looking over the shoulder of these people and saying, you know, oh no, that's not gum, that's gun. Uh, yeah. And they're not going to be saying this is what it means. The people who find the bottle will decide what it means. So my opinions about my books or my films are just that. They're just opinions. Mm -hmm. And there's no right or wrong. There's no definitive to it. Uh, it's all guesswork uh, when I say, oh, this... I like this movie better. Artists are not answers at the book, at the at the back of a book of math equations. Yeah. Oh, flip back here and see, you know, see what it is. I once heard somebody ask Billy Wilder, "Is one, two, three a political film?" And putting aside the question of, I don't know what that term political film really means anyway. Mm -hmm. But if like he had said, "No, it's not a political film," and you had had quote, political, end quote, associations with it, yeah. you were somehow wrong. Right. Or conversely, if he'd say, yes, it's a political film, and you, by contrast, had merely thought it was a boring one, uh, <laughs> that you were somehow wrong again, mm -hmm. as if he had the answer. Well, he doesn't have the answer. And yeah. answers aren't very interesting in art anyway. What's interesting is questions. Once you get the answer, it's like explaining a magic trick. Yeah. Oh, 
when Watson, uh, when, when Holmes explains to Watson how he has deduced something, Watson invariably says, oh, for a moment there, I thought you'd done something really clever. <laughs> and Holmes says, yeah, it's a great mistake for me to explain. <laughs> That's fantastic. So having said all that, I have one last question for you. And if you want to answer it, you can. Um, if presented with the opportunity to travel through time like your characters, would you be like H.G. Wells and Jack the Ripper and go to the future? Or would you be like the cat, the crew of the Enterprise and go to the past? Where would you go? The past sounds a safer bet, but I'd make sure I'd had my shots. <laughs> a very safe answer. I like I'm that. Cautious guy. <laughs> Nicholas, thank you so much for the time. It's just been a, it's a fascinating conversation. Absolutely. And we're going to have to have you back next summer so we can talk about Discovery with, we, I was going to say a little bit more openly, but we didn't talk about it at all. So we're going to have to. Not open. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. You got to put in Star Trek music or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to have, yeah, we need to have some new music. We're going to do some Star Trek. Which, but which one? Which Star, Star Trek? Trek? Which Star Trek 2 music? Star Trek 2, yeah, man. Okay, okay. Rather calling. That's what he directed, and it's like okay, the best Okay, well, that's ever. what we'll do. That's what we'll do. We'll put that in. All right. All right, here, here we go. <laughs> wow, this is, this is amazing. To us, it's silence, but to you, you're getting to hear this wonderful music. It was fun. It was fun. It was, uh, sometimes when I arrange these things, I kind of, I mean, obviously we're not going to reach out to people that we don't want to talk to, or mm -hmm. we don't think are going to be interesting, but, uh, sometimes you're not really sure how the interviews are going to come out. Um, yeah. and some of them are pleasant surprises. Not, not to say that I didn't think that our chat with Nick Meyer was going to be awesome, but, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes they just go much better than we think that they're going to go. And I think, I agree with you. This is this is one of them. This was a really good talk, and uh, I'm, I'm happy with it. I'm happy with us, Justin. <laughs> I'm happy too. I told, <clears throat> excuse me. I told Sarah about uh, the Irregulars. The Baker Street oh yeah, Irregulars. Baker Street Irregulars. And she's a big Sherlock Holmes fan. She was like, "How do yeah. I get in the club?" And I said, "Just forget about it. Yeah, <laughs> just just don't even think about it." <laughs> How sorry. do I get in the Not club? that you're not cool. Not that you're not cool enough. Whatever. It's like Don't if you have to ask, took, you're not getting took, in. Yeah. <laughs> if it took, if it took the guy that brought it back from the dead yeah. ten years, you're not getting. <laughs> How do I get in the club? That's awesome. I love that. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> All right, guys. So if you want to uh, keep the fun happening, if your first time, keep the magic going. Hit subscribe and come back week after week. Sometimes two days a week you can come back. But not and for a while. Not for a while. Not this is the end. This is space week is done. Uh all right. Oh, <laughs> you can, tears in my eye. But we are always on Twitter and we are always on Facebook and sometimes I even if I hear the notification come in, in the middle of the night, I'll answer you if oh. I'm asleep. Whoa, that's service. <laughs> um I'm gonna try doing that now. Yeah. <laughs> if I hear it go off, I will. I reach over <laughs> and I grab it. I'm like, oh, okay. Social media never sleeps. So you can find us at GB, the GBB podcast on Facebook and Twitter. I am Justin at 140Justin C. I'm Jamie at the Roarbots. And you can also give us a call at 301-825-5653. Leave us a message. We might use your message on an episode. You could just call in and be like, hey, I'm Chuck <laughs> Schmuck. And you are listening to the great, beautiful, um, 
darn good, awesome yeah. podcast, whatever it is, you're yeah. listening to it. And that's what we'll use at the top of a show. I promise you. You can even be like, hey, I'm a guy that has eight published, self-published novels. Yeah. You Self-promotion, know, I, man. Yeah, you want to call in, leave us a message, self-promote the heck out of yourself. As long as you say the name of our show, we'll use it. Maybe We're if, shameless. You, if you write Twilight fanfic, that might not happen, but we'll see. Okay. You know what? I'm not. I'm not, we're not drawing the line yet. We're not, we're not that big. No, no. Keep, we won't draw know. the line. Okay. Yeah. No. All right. Not yet. <laughs> All right, guys. We will see you next time. Have a good day. Yeah. This podcast has been a production of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this content, please consider supporting us at Patreon.com/slash/GeekDad.